The first three verses of, of chapter 8 are really a, serve as a transition you know, to our study. And uh, it just is actually part of uh, the material that uh, we looked at last week as uh, it begins here with this persecution uh, coming from the Jews against Christians. You know, in chapter 7, our brother Stephen is put to death by the hands of fellow kinsmen and the leadership of his day. And so that becomes a catalyst that sparks this effort really to exterminate, to exterminate Christians. This really should not have been a surprise to any of them. Uh, For example, you recall what Jesus says in the upper room in John 15, verse 18, when he's talking to the apostles and the principle applies to all those who follow Christ. He says, if they hated me, what will they do? They will hate you. And in verse 20, he says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And so that's exactly what's happening here is because of who Jesus is, because of what the message of Jesus is, you've got this persecution that is being directed to all followers, all disciples of the king. Now Saul, as we understand and learn here in chapter, at the end of chapter 7 and in the beginning of chapter 8, he's a young Jew from faraway Tarsus, Cilicia, he is also a Pharisee that was educated under Gamaliel. You know, he, Gamaliel was introduced earlier in our, our section of Acts we're going. And now he's at the head of this violent agenda. And the first uh, you know, objective at hand is to destroy the Jerusalem church. That's the objective. Yeah, and so you see Christians are fleeing the city now to the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, but the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Now, at this time, here's just a thought question, give you something to answer. At this time, how did the apostles avoid being thrown into prison again? If you've got this persecution that is directed against the church and, uh, and you're going to try to exterminate Christians you know, and make sure the church is, is totally destroyed. How was it that the apostles at this time have avoided imprisonment and death? How is that possible? Huh? Right. God, Christ. You think of the idea earlier on, we see if the Lord you know, could free them you know, from imprisonment by sending an angel, a messenger from above. If he could do that earlier and get them out of, uh, out of jail, then God can protect them as he needs them to be protected. He can protect them in order to achieve you know, and fulfill the purpose that he needs them to accomplish. And so from this point on, it's not several chapters, but you don't have... You know, uh, any information given that basically says that the persecution is being directed again at the apostles themselves. That doesn't happen until chapter, chapter 12. So it will come back to them. But right now, you know, the leadership of the Lord's people you know, is, is being protected, it seems, by the hand of God, by the providence of God. And so all the others are now being uh, kind of the, the target at hand. 
And so with this, you really begin to get into the next section of our outline of Acts, where now as the gospel spreads and they are witnesses to the world, they are now witnessing and uh, proclaiming Christ to these next two regions of Judea and Samaria. So you think about this. You know, you know, we don't know exactly how many years has spanned from, you know, uh, chapter 2 to chapter 8. You know, there, you know, scholars will estimate those kind of things, but it's not terribly long. It's not like you've got a whole, gen, you, know, you know, generation that has now grown up, as we say, you know, in the, the church or, you know, with uh, godly uh, Christ-believing parents, you know, that's not what you, you know, what's going on here. And so you've got these early Christians who are grounded well in Christ. They have been grounded well in Christ. They have matured quickly in the knowledge of the Word and the knowledge of Christ. They've matured quickly in the area of perseverance. And so, yes, they are getting out of dangerous territory, so they, yes, they're, so they're getting out of James's territory, but that becomes an opportunity to sow the seed of Christ's kingdom elsewhere. So you think of this idea, the attempt of our adversary Satan through his you know, messengers and through his servants, the attempt of our adversary to silence God's people. To silence the message of Christ, the good news of Jesus. That attempt really became an opportunity for greater broadcasting. And that's what goes on here. These saints are grounded. Yes, they're they're leaving dangerous territory. That's clear. But it is all part of God's plan. You know, bad times become a time for God through his people to do greater works now. And so this chapter, I think, should help us to, you know, to perhaps look at circumstances, and situations and hardships, difficulties we go through and say, okay, how can I see my situation, my circumstance through the lenses of God's vision? How's God seeing the bad time I'm going through? And what does he want me to do with it? So here in the early days of the body of Christ, uh, yes, the, the uh, Leanne, uh, yes, uh, you've got uh, this idea of they began witnessing Jerusalem, but Jesus says, but it's not going to stop there. It's going to spread. And so you see God's plan at work. Leanne. During times of persecution, you grow as a Christian um, because they were going through physical, mental, and spiritual persecution day by day, every day. And compared to what we go through, this is, this is nothing compared to what we go through. Um, but there are countries and nations that will put you in jail because you disagree with them religiously or or politically, or whatever, but mostly because you disagree with them religiously. Mm-hmm. All I have to say is that is not a Christ-like spirit. And um, you know, there was there was a lot of um, people 
who who died for the for the faith and when you look at that and then you look at your problems or your poverty or whatever you're going through at the, at this time you realize i'm i'm pretty blessed to live in the nation that i live in i'm pretty blessed to live where i live because a lot of people don't have that freedom and you know the people that want that freedom they will call people in america to help them get that freedom so I mean, um, these people um, were persecuted, but it made them grow stronger together. It made them love each other. It made them trust each other. It made them bond, and it made the church grow. Persecution does not hinder the church; it makes it grow. And so that's what makes enemies of Christ mm-hmm. so angry, because it does the opposite effect. Right. Thank you very much. Anyone else want to add add some thoughts? To this idea of God's plan. God accomplishing his will in spite of the opposition that was at hand. You think the idea, a man can be a disciple, a true disciple, and a worshiper of God anywhere in this world. You didn't have to just live in Jerusalem. <laughs> you know, God's, God's good news of his son is for all people. It's it's open, available for all sinners, and therefore that message needs to go to the world. Anything else before we move on into chapter 8? Well, very quickly, let's just kind of ask a few of the questions from your question sheet, and then we'll get into uh, the text itself. Question number one, what did the Christians do when they fled from Jerusalem? They preached Christ. They proclaimed the word of God. And so, you know, they didn't stop being who they had become. Uh, Question six, what did Peter command the Christian Simon to do when he sinned? Repent and pray. Good. Okay, question eight, how did the Ethiopian know that he must be baptized? How did he know that? All right. Philip preached to him Christ from what Philip taught, what, what Philip revealed to him by the direction of the Holy Spirit. Last question, question 12 on your sheet. What did Philip keep on doing as he went from place to place? He just kept on preaching the gospel. And that's, you know, you know the thing, that's really what, what Acts is all about. The idea of proclaiming the message of Christ to the world, no matter you know, where you are, no matter what the hurdles are, keep preaching Christ to the saving of souls. And so we start there in, in verse 4 uh, and 5, where they have been scattered and they're preaching the word. And so Luke... Yeah, it uh, is directed here to tell us about uh, a disciple named Philip, our brother Philip here, that takes the gospel uh, to the city of Samaria. Now, where was Philip first introduced? He's one of the seven back in chapter six, and so he's one of the seven who you know was called and chosen and selected to serve the widows who were in need in the church at Jerusalem, you know, along with Stephen. Stephen is a number and five other brothers in Christ. Yeah, but what we, what we see here, serving tables was not all that Philip did. 
And what we find is Philip has become this very powerful, effective evangelist, a proclaimer of Christ. And what this illustrates is the ongoing work of what the apostles had been doing. Once they sowed the seed, they kept teaching that message and grounding Christians in the word of the Lord. And as Paul, for example, tells Timothy uh, in chapter 2, verse 2 of 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, where Timothy is being instructed, he says, you teach faithful men so that what? So they will be able to teach others. That's what's supposed to be going on constantly. That when we become a Christian, we are to continue to grow in the word so that we in turn could teach others the gospel. And so Philip is an example of that. As someone who became a Christian and is grounded in the faith and has been taught to teach Others. And so we are told that he takes you know, Christ and he preaches it to this city. Now, as he's preaching Christ, if you kind of glance there you know, later on in verse 12, preaching Christ involved a couple other aspects. You know, and that is, one, he says preaching Christ involved the good news about the kingdom of God. And the good news about the name of Jesus Christ. To preach Christ is to preach the kingdom. And to preach Christ is to preach the name of the Christ. So what concepts are rooted in those two ideas? The kingdom of Christ and the name of Christ. What are the two concepts that are rooted in that? One, I'll give you, you know, for kingdom, it's the idea of rule. Governance. And so who is king? Who, you know, who is, is to be Lord of your life? Christ. And so you have the idea, when you preach Christ, it, it has to include the idea of the governance and the rule of God's Son as your king, as your Lord. Along with that, it's almost somewhat synonymous or embedded in that concept. When you talk about doing something in the name of Christ, what does that really entail? Doing it by the authority of Christ. And so when he preached Christ, he preached the rule of Christ. He is king now. He is at the right hand of God as Lord of lords. Yeah. He is God's anointed one. And so he preached that to the Samaritans. But also he taught the idea, okay, as a result of his rule, as his you know, uh, position that has been given to him, he has authority. How much authority? He has all of it. And in application, what does that mean to you and me? How much authority does, is he supposed to have in your life? He has all authority over your life. You know, that's, that's kind of hard for us Americans. The idea that, okay, Jesus has all authority over me. And, and, and the so-called my rights are secondary to his authority. But you think of the idea, here is Philip. He hasn't been a Christian that long. But he is preaching boldly Christ. And he's preaching these kind of concepts and he's doing so with the ability to perform miracles. 
Now, you think, okay, where did he get that? Well, we're told back in chapter 6, you know, part of the qualifications to be numbered among the seven, you had to be full of the spirit and power. And so, you know, well, how, 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 did, how did he get that fullness of the spirit and power and wisdom? Well, chapter, six, chapter 8 tells us that a little bit later on in your reading, as you know. Before we go there, you know, where, where did Philip's teach? When he preached Christ, he preached the rule of Christ, he preached the authority of Christ. And so when he did that, what did that teaching of Christ lead the people to do? To be baptized. And so that also is part of teaching the rule and authority of Christ. You know, part of that rule and authority is the command and the, the essential act of obedience of baptism. Now, you know, and they would have learned that where? Well, they learned that from the teaching or the preaching of Christ. You know, if you preach Christ and exclude, you know, baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then you have not preached Christ. You preach something else. You preach, as Galatians 1 talks about, a gospel, a message that has been changed in some way. And so you know, preaching Christ involves us in all of these different concepts. And once again, you've got this, this really almost Reader's Digest version of the, the amazing work that God is doing through his people who have made this allegiance to the Christ and they are doing so to the risk of their own life. They're willing to die for him. Yes, they'll get out of dangerous territory you know, when that's possible, but they're, they, they're not going to stop obeying Jesus. They're not going to stop preaching Jesus because as Peter and John say earlier back in chapter, chapter 4, you know, there is salvation in no what? There is salvation, no other name. That's us and them, everybody. That includes everybody. You know, no one today is going to be saved without Jesus Christ. So they need to know Jesus Christ. And that is all part of the Great Commission. Whether you're looking at Luke's account of the Great Commission in chapter 24 of Luke, or Mark's account in chapter 16, or Matthew's account in chapter 28. You know, we see basic components that are part of the Great Commission, and that's what these Christians, like Philip and others, are doing. Because, remember, in the Great Commission of Matthew, you know, the apostles are told, you need to teach all that I commanded you. You know, whatever I told you to observe, you tell others to observe. And so if the apostles have been told to take the gospel to the lost, so, you know, the marathon concept is then the next ones need to take that gospel to the lost. You know, it's not just limited to a small group of men. It is, it is part of the call of Christ is that we are to share that with others. And so you've got an amazing response here in Samaria, and as, as many of you know, you know, there is some, you know, bad relations between Jews and Samaritans, but the gospel, the gospel sets those things aside because the gospel says Jews and Samaritans both need Christ. 
To the point that even there is an interesting character named Simon, who was a sorcerer. He, he had done some pretty amazing magical arts among the city, and he had pressed the city, and he had convinced the city earlier on that he was what? What did, he, what did Simon convince the, the, the city of Samaria previously before the coming of Philip? Yeah, he was some great power of God. And so through his deception, through his illusions, he, he had led the people to, 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 to believe that, that he was some great power from God. But then one of the things you need to see here in this account of Philip taking the, the gospel of the Samaria is to see the contrast that the people are able to distinguish. Yes, Simon had astonished them, but when Philip comes along the way, And they hear what Philip has to say, and they see what Philip is doing. He says, they believe Philip. They believe the message Philip gave, and then they were baptized. And so you need to kind of see that that contrast that they are able to now to start seeing the distinction between the two. Simon is nothing compared to Philip. The truth that he is preaching and the power he is using to confirm that message. And so we are told that the apostles in Jerusalem hear about this great news that's happening up in in Samaria, north of them. And the apostles decide to do what? Yeah, the, the apostles as a group decide to descend Peter and John up there for what primary reason? Huh? To impart the Spirit, to lay their hands on these new converts, to impart, you know, to impart the Spirit upon them. And so you see that in verse, you know, verse four, you know, uh, 14 and following says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem, remember they stayed, they've stayed, you know, almost like, you know, almost like they're holding the fort down, you know, you know, so they've kind of stayed in one place. You know, he says, when they heard you know, that Samaria had received the word of God. You know, here's, a, here's another thought, kind of thought question. When you truly receive the word of God, what's going to result? If you have received it, what's going to result? What, you know, the, these people in Samaria had received the word, and what did they do? Yeah, they are baptized. When you receive the word, you obey it. You think about parable of, parable of the soil, parable of the sower, the fourth, the fourth soil, the fourth heart, the good and honest one, the sincere one, the genuine one. When they hear the word and receive it, what, what do they do? They bear fruit you know, unto God. And so that's, that's, that's what's going on here. People are hearing it, you know, being convicted and recognize this is truly God's word and God's work, not an illusion, not a deception. And so they receive the word of God. And so the apostles hear this. They received it in that reception of all's obedience. And so they sent them Peter and John, verse 14, now verse 15, who came down. Let me do, here's a little trivia question. Why is it said came down? Samaria's north. Why are they coming down to Samaria? Elevation, right. So there's, you know, there's you know, the, as- the aspect of the terrain of geography. Why is that so significant when you think about Luke, the historian? 
Jerusalem's always above, but as a historian, and you're gonna, if you're going to describe you know, the area and everything, and, and you're a historian, what's important for, to you when you tell the story? Details, being exact, you know. And so, you know, so that Luke is doing that. And so when he describes even the traveling from one place to another, you know, yes, you know, Jerusalem was a higher elevation. And so it's not just, okay, you know, they went to Samaria. You know, why do you have to say they went down to Samaria? Well, because Luke is into details. He's a true, reliable historian. And so they go down to Jerusalem uh, and he says, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So they prayed, the apostles prayed, laid their hands on them, and then what happened? They received the Spirit. Simon notices this, and as, you, as you well know. Simon takes note of this, and in verse 19, notice how he says, he says, give me what? Give me authority. Give me authority so I can lay my hands on people so that they may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon wanted this authority. You know, why, why, could, why did Philip not lay his hands on those he baptized to give them the Holy Spirit? He didn't have the authority. Who has the authority to do that? The apostles, see? And so you've got apostolic authority here at work. Not everybody was apostles. And because everybody wasn't apostles, everybody didn't have apostolic authority. And so Simon, you know, he's a smart guy. You know, you know, give him credit where credit's due. He's a smart guy. Now he messes up here, but he has a heart that is, you know, eager to make things right with God, to make things right with the Lord. But and so Simon recognized the Peter and John had different authority than Philip. And he wanted what the apostles had. And of course, Peter rebukes him. What I want to just kind of point out about the rebuke is a couple things. In verse 21, 22, when Peter is rebuking Simon for trying to basically bribe him, you know, he tried to, hey, give me money. So he's trying to bribe the apostles for this authority that they had as chose, uniquely chosen ones of Christ. And, he, and in verse 21 and 22, where was the root problem of Simon's sin? Heart. The heart. And that's what Peter emphasizes here. Yeah. He, he, he didn't... He, yeah. Now, what he said... You know, and the idea of covetous, you know, you know, you know that what he said was wrong, but the, the, where the problem is the heart. And so he says, okay, your heart is not right. The reason Simon tried to bribe Peter and John is because his heart was not right. And then in verse 22, he, he says, okay, you need to, you know, repent and pray so the intention or motives of your heart may be forgiven 
Now, what did Jesus say? For example, back in Mark 7, you know, and got the problem of, okay, you're, 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 you know, you, you, this whole washing or not washing of your hand, disciples' hands. And he goes from that to talk about true uncleanness. And he talks about sin, you know, and the names of several sins in Mark 7, verse 21. And he says, where did that, all these different sins he lists, where did they issue from? It comes from the heart. Brother Bruce. Well, his heart is shown back in uh, verse 13 when he believes and begins following the disciples. He didn't, it doesn't say he listened. It doesn't say he started growing. It says that he was uh, beholding and wondering about the miracles that he saw and the signs which were done. So it was already in his heart uh, that that was his old uh, self mm -hmm. not being killed. Here he wanted more of what he had, but this was better. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Appreciate you bringing that up. Someone else want to add something about you know, Simon and his heart and his sin. Okay, Alan over here. Uh, I think Simon here, he, his story shows a very realistic conversion of someone who he believes and he's convicted to be baptized. And yet that does not mean he's just changed completely and he will never do something wrong and he has perfect knowledge. I think all of us would say when when we believed and we committed to Christ, not long after that, we probably made a mistake. Something of our old life or bitterness or iniquity still was still something we had to fight against. And we see him here. And as you pointed out, he does, when he receives the rebuke, you know, there's a choice. Does, is he going to say, well, this is not what I thought it was. You're rude to me. Tell me. No, mm -hmm. he, he says, oh, I'm sorry. Like, right. please pray for me so this doesn't happen. It's this very similar to, I think, what a lot of us go through, maybe different ways, but mm -hmm. it's going to be a struggle and we're going to continue to have to work on ourselves and our hearts. Appreciate that. Yes. David? Just to add to that, uh, the, um, this is a good passage to use against uh, once saved, always saved. Mm -hmm. You know, he, Simon believed, he was baptized, he was saved, um, he offered money, and his heart wasn't right, it says, was he still saved? And some would mm -hmm. say, yes, he was, even though Peter said, your money perish with you. Mm -hmm. But there was something he had to do about that. He right. had to repent and pray. Brother John? I'll just follow on what Alan just said there. I think it's Proverbs 23, verse 4, keep thy heart with all... Yeah, watch the microphone. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Mm -hmm. And, of course... Here's an example with Simon, and good example of why it's a, a good idea to keep your heart in the right right way. Yes, it really is. You know, you think about you know, it, you know, it by all implication, you know, Simon made made everything right. You know, you see, you know, yes, there's sin in his heart, but it's a heart that accepts the rebuke, you know, humbly, penitently, and he seeks. You know, even Peter to intercede for him and with him. I got to help when you think about this other cross references uh, you know, of, the, of the Spirit's you know, revelation in the New Testament. For example, 1 John 1 9 talks about, you know, we are promised if we confess our sins to him, what will our God do? 
He will faithfully forgive us of our iniquities and our, and our unrighteousness. In, in the same book, 1 John chapter, you know, chapter 2, he says, I'm writing so you will not you know, sin, my little children. I'm writing, you know, that, that's the goal. You know, stay away from sin. You know, you need, you get out of your life. And so, yes, that's the ultimate goal. But then in verse 2, you know, he says, but he goes on to say, but if you do, who do you have? You have an advocate, you know, and it's Jesus Christ, who is a propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the world. Or even more so, maybe James 5 perhaps relates even particularly uniquely with this account. And so the idea of, of Acts 8 and James 5 going together and talks about if you, you know, if you will confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, you know, you will be healed. And he goes on to say, the effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. In the context there, the predominant aspect of this has to do with the spiritual well-being of, of each other. That's the predominant, that's the primary you know, uh, uh, point of that. Yes, we, we need to be praying for each other's physical health too because we care but the idea here is, uh, is you know, Simon recognized, Peter, pray with me, pray for me. He recognized, you know, here's Peter, the apostle with authority, uh, who could aid him in you know, returning back to the Lord. Leanne. Reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how, how filthy you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you come home and you say you're sorry, God is well, welcome, welcome to you and the angels rejoice when you say you're sorry. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, it's the attitude, it's the humbleness. And it doesn't mean that you, you don't make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. But if you, if you truly repent and you try to learn from your mistakes and you try to overcome it, God will be that peace Mm-hmm. That you have. So if you're up all night tossing and turning and you wonder why you can't sleep at night, maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to ask God what's going on and ask God for help. Yeah. It's just a suggestion. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay, let's move on. I'd like to kind of finish this chapter you know, today where, once again, you've got Philip now is going to you know, teach you know, uh, an Ethiopian who's on his way home from Jerusalem. Uh, this one's kind of unique because you've got the angel of the Lord basically directing Philip to this searching heart, to this one that God already knows has a good and honest heart who is ready to receive Christ's kingdom. You know, what did Jesus say in Matthew 7? Sermon about if you ask, what? Yeah, you'll be given. If you, if you seek, you'll find. And so you see God in his providence you know, you know uh, working things out so that this Ethiopian you know, receives the gospel uh, and is the opportunity to render obedience to Christ. And so we're told who he is. You know, he is a court official of the Queen of Candace, uh, uh, Queen of the Ethiopians. He was in Jerusalem to worship. He's now going home. And so somewhere between Jerusalem and Gaza, remember he, He was up in Samaria, and so he has to come come down or go up, go up to Jerusalem, and then down, you know, toward uh, Gaza as well. That's where he comes in contact with this particular man, who was using his time reading the scriptures while his servants are driving his chariot. 
You know, so that, you know, so he's using his time in God's word, but he doesn't understand particularly this passage about the Messiah that talks about him, describes him as a lamb that was to be slaughtered. And, uh, and so he's wanting to know, what, what does this mean? You know, you know who's, who's, who's he talking about? To me, what's interesting is, once again, fr- uh, from this passage, starting with his Isaiah 53, what did then Philip preach? He preached Christ, starting with Isaiah 53. You know, is that the only place he could start? No. Is it the only place he could start in the Old Testament? No. When you think about it, the Old Testament really is a revelation of Christ. And so, for example, you know, Paul writes in Galatians 3 how the gospel was actually preached before Abraham. The gospel was already being preached. The gospel, the good news of Christ was already being preached through the prophecies and the promises of God. And so the Old Testament reveals to us the coming of Christ and the Old Testament reveals to us who he is. But this eunuch, this Ethiopian, he's not going to be saved without hearing the gospel and he's not going to be saved without obeying the gospel, even though an angel is part of the story. Did the angel save this man, no. The only one that can save him is Christ, is Jesus, Jesus Christ. But he has to hear about Christ, and he has to be obedient to Christ. And so after hearing about, about him, he wants to be baptized. Once again, why would he want to be baptized? It's part of being in Christ. He would not have known. Does Isaiah tell you anything about baptism? No, it doesn't tell you anything about baptism in Isaiah 53. But when you preach Christ, the fullness of Christ, the power of the gospel, you know, it is part of Christ. It is all part of that great com- commission of seeking the lost and saving the lost through Christ. And so here's a man who was lost in sin, needed forgiveness, and baptism was a, an essential component to that. Um, what, one of the things you can see here is, okay, baptism requires water. How much water do you need to be baptized? Yes, enough to go down into it. Yeah, and so, and so once again, you think about Luke, the details you know, that he shares with us to, have us, to give us the, the understanding and the certainty. Chapter 1 talked about, I'm writing so you can know for certain so, you know, not only you can know for certain who Jesus is, you can not only know for certain what do the apostles do, but also you can know for certain about baptism as well. And that it involves enough water to go down into, you know, to be immersed, to be dunked, to be dipped, however you want to call that, but to be buried in water. And when he came up, this Ethiopian went on his way doing what? Rejoicing. Why? Why is he rejoicing? He is saved. He's in Christ now. He is part of the covenant, the, you know, the covenant of Christ. He is now tasting the goodness of God's kindness and the goodness of God's peace that is available to all sinners that would come to Jesus Christ. And so the chapter ends with Philip going back to Jerusalem, right? And just, okay, I've done my work. I'm done. I can rest and put my feet up. No, that's not how it ends. 
Philip is then kind of taken off. He ends up, you know, I don't know if you can see it here, Azotus, it says, you know, kind of there on the coast. You know, it says the kind of spirit, you know, he kind of had found himself there because the spirit had kind of snatched him away. And this is where he found himself. That's an interesting study for you to do. Uh, but, uh, you find, and then, but it says, you know, he was kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. See, it ends basically how it started. Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip was just one of the many. Yeah. You think about how many thousand Christians were in Jerusalem? We don't know specifically, but we know it reached. What was the last number we had? 5,000 men. You know, that's the last number. They scattered, going to all these different regions in Judea and Samaria. And Philip was just one of them. Just one of them. That's why, as the story continues to unfold, that's why Paul could say in Colossians, the gospel was preached to the world. Because Christians were doing what they were called to do. Thank you very much for your attention.